Let me ask you a question this morning. If you were God, you had all the powers of the divine being, what would would be the first thing that you would want to do? What would be at the top of your priority list of things to get done? As you may, may well know, a while back, this very scenario was played out rather comically by Jim Carrey in his movie, Bruce Almighty. And in the show, we see what happens when a, an average guy gets endowed with divine powers. And we see him indulge in every selfish interest imaginable until, until he really begins to mess up the world. And by the end of the story, the movie's message seems to be, you know, cut God some slack. I mean, it's tough to be God. Now, of course, we might have a little problem with the theological message of the movie, but obviously it wasn't meant to be taken seriously. It's a spoof. But the question is, how does the God of the Bible compare with the divine being portrayed by Morgan Freeman in the movie? Well, in short, the scriptures portray God as so much more than a mere practitioner of magic tricks for the amusement of his creatures. I mean, certainly he's all-powerful, but he's not merely almighty. He's also infinite, meaning there's nothing that can limit him with respect to space and time. It makes me think of uh, the, the James Webb Space Telescope. If any of you are following the, the latest uh, advances in, in astronomy, the, the most powerful telescope that we can construct is out there in outer space, and now they can look further into space than ever before. And the further they look into space, the more galaxies appear. And we see how creation reflects the infinity of God. That there are, according to the, the latest estimates, two billion galaxies in the observable universe. Each galaxy containing billions of stars. It just racks our mind that God is truly infinite and eternal, limitless with respect to space or time. He's all-knowing. That is, he knows everything past, present, and future. Not only things actual, but even all things potential. Even every possible potential contingency, all things are equally present to his eternal mind. Now try to grasp that for a moment. I mean, this is who the God of Scripture is. As our catechism put it, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And if that's true, if you really believe that, then the most important mission in your life is not to live for yourself and for your own pleasures, but to find out who this God is and what he requires of you. Can anything else be more important than that? That brings us to our proposition statement. All right, Dr. Carter, what is the sermon about in a nutshell? Well, here it is. In one sentence, since God is infinite, almighty, and all-knowing, you must yield to him. You see, that's what Job 38 is really all about. And I think as we get into the details of this passage, I think that message will become more clear. All right, then, with that said, let's get into it, shall we? The first thing I want you to observe about this passage of Scripture is that because God is eternal and almighty and all-knowing, point number one, you must admit your ignorance before him. Because whatever it is that you think you know is nothing compared to what you don't know. Now, again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread the whole um, section in its entirety, but follow along in your Bibles as we break down God's argument here. Again, consider for a moment what God is trying to accomplish here. You see, Job and his friends have been debating what went wrong in Job's life. I mean, how did things end up this way? I mean, where is God in the middle of all this disaster? I mean, whose fault is it? And as we see in the previous chapters, Job's three friends, they've got it all messed up. 
They think that because bad things have happened to him, then it must be that Job's got some kind of bad karma. You know, I mean, he must have done something to have brought all these tragedies upon himself. Sort of like the disciples in John chapter 9, when they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or, or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, that was the conventional wisdom of the day. If bad things happened to you, well, it was because you must have somehow brought that upon yourself through things that you have done. Somehow you sinned. And that's the explanation. But what's the real reason? Again, consider Jesus' answer in John chapter 9, when he replied, it's neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but rather so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, sometimes bad things happen to people in this fallen world, and that's just the way it is. Sometimes those things happen for reasons that are beyond us, and only God knows why. But as we see here in the previous chapter, Job's three friends, they think they've got God all figured out. You see, they understand that since Job is suffering, it must be his own fault, plain and simple. You see, they understand that because Job is um, suffering, that one way or another, these, the fault for these things lies with himself. Now, of course, we see throughout the book here, Job is protesting his innocence. And at least to a certain degree, he comes across as rather pompous and, and arrogant himself. He knows that his friends are wrong. He can't explain why these things are happening to him, but if he knows one thing, he knows that his friends are wrong. And to a certain degree, he begins to take pride in his own righteousness, like somehow God is obligated to him because he's lived so well. And so after all of the disputes and the speeches, man's wisdom is exhausted by chapter 37. And here in chapter 38, God intervenes to settle the argument. And he starts off in verse 2, by essentially saying, who are you insignificant nothings that you think you can question my integrity? I'll answer your questions. You just answer a few of mine first. Verse 3. Essentially, who do you think you are? Verse 4. Where were you in eternity past? Funny, I don't remember seeing you there when I created the world and everything in it. Tell me, what do you know about the limits of the sea and how I carved out the boundaries for it before you were even made? Verses 8 to 11. Tell me what you know about the morning light. Verses 12 to 15. Or about the dark recesses of the sea. Verse 16. Or about the mysteries of death. In verse 17. It's almost as if the Lord is taunting the men. I mean, he's, he's ripping into them with this biting sarcasm in order to make a point. Basically, he's trying to say, hey, fellas, you think you're so smart, you don't know anything. Who are you to question me? Look at verses 19 and 21. Again, in verse 19, the Lord says, Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? Verse 21, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days was great. Right? What's, what's going on here? The Lord's making a, a point very powerfully. In other words, tell me, tell me, you've been around for such a long time. What's it really like? Tell me what you know about heaven and hell. You know, don't you? I mean, after all, you've been around for such a long time. Tell me what you know about where the snow and the hail and the east wind come from. Verses 22 to 24. You get the point. You see, God is making a statement about the mortality and the ignorance of man. That he's under absolutely no obligation to explain himself to his creatures or to submit to their limited reasoning because he's God and he will do all his good pleasure. And the place of man is not to analyze him or to second-guess his goodness or question his ways. No, 
The place of man is to submit to God's will and trust in his goodness. Why? Well, because we don't know everything he knows. Our wisdom is finite. Our wisdom is limited. Our understanding is imperfect. And so if we are going to heed the lesson of this chapter, we need to begin by confessing our ignorance and trusting in God after the spirit of Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. Of course, you have it memorized, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Let's look at it from a different perspective. Imagine for a moment you were stricken with a terrible, rare disease. And so you searched and you searched and you finally found a specialist who concentrates on this particular disorder. And after a series of consultations, you finally go to him to discuss the treatment that he's about to prescribe. And when you hear the remedy, you say to him, nah, doc, I don't think that's going to work. You know, um, and the doctor is apparently taken by surprise as you go on. You know, doctor, I don't think that's the, the right way to handle the situation. I mean, I got a few other ideas that seem to be a little bit more promising. You know, I found this website called WebMD, and you can look up your symptoms. And, you know, I, I think I, I know what's going on. Of course, we can't blame the doctor when he tells us, listen, son, with all due respect, you're entitled to your opinion, but please understand not all opinions are created equal. Some opinions are more informed than others. Right? I specialize in this disease. I'm the Nobel Prize winning you know, professor of biological chemistry at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, I know what I'm talking about here. You need this particular treatment. Nah, I think I'll pass. I think I've got a few better ideas. Now, as absurd as that exchange might sound, don't we play the same kind of games with God at times? Because he's God, and he knows what he's talking about. And unless you're all-knowing, he's got more information than you do. He's got more wisdom than you do. He's got more understanding than you do. And so that's why it's imperative for us to submit to his greater wisdom. Because we're not always going to understand why he does what he does. But we can rest assured that he's just and that he's righteous in all his ways. That everything that he does is ultimately for good and noble ends. Bottom line. We're in no position to question his goodness or call him to account for his works. I mean, who are we? We don't know what he knows. So that means we need to, once again, point number one, we need to admit our ignorance before God. Of course, we do know things, but compared to the omniscience of God, our knowledge of the things that really matter is really minuscule. I mean, as the, as the great philosopher Will Rogers put it, we're all ignorant just about different things. How true it is, right? And compared to God's exhaustive knowledge of everything, our understanding of things is quite insignificant. So once again, I'll put the question, who are we to question God? Since when did we get the right to pull God down off of his throne in heaven, put him under our microscope to see if he will fit into our little box? You see, God doesn't play these kinds of games, and he refuses to answer to man. But that doesn't mean we can't trust him. That doesn't mean that his ways aren't always good. You see, that's what God is protesting here. The idea that we can charge him with fault because he doesn't measure up to our expectations. Basically, he's reminding us that he's in charge, that he knows what he's doing. We don't know nearly as much as he does, and we need to realize that. And if we don't, we're simply being foolish. That's why God condescends to us through the Holy Scriptures, because it's through the Bible that God reveals to us everything that we need to know about Him and everything that He requires of us. 
So realize today that you don't have God's heavenly perspective on everything. You don't know what he knows. Point number one, we need to admit our ignorance before him. And point number two, we need to confess our weakness before him. So the next thing I want you to observe about this text is how the Lord contrasts his strength with our weakness in the last half of the chapter. Now, once again, for the, the sake of time, I'm not going to go back and, and reread you know, the, the appropriate sections here, but um, take a look at how Almighty God continues to mock the weakness of his skeptics. And he starts by reminding his hearers that he has the, the thunder and the lightning and the rain at his disposal, and he rehearses a litany of the wonders of creation. And then he essentially challenges Job and his friends, can you do any of this? All things he's created out of nothing, and he directs and sustains them by a sovereign providence, and as a reward he receives not his rightful praise and adoration, but rather he receives criticism and complaining. And so once again, he puts man in his place. Look at verses 31 and following. Can you direct the stars and put them into their place? Can you care for the wild animals? Can you direct the clouds and the wind and the rain and the lightning? Can you give insight to the simple? Wisdom to the foolish? Of course, these are all rhetorical questions, right? The answers are self-evident. The answer, of course, is no. Only God can do these things. But if that's true, well, then why is God asking these questions in the first place? He's reminding us who he is. And conversely, he's reminding us who we are. You see, he's the Almighty. He has sovereign dominion over all creation. We're simply his creatures. And all the world and everything in it answers to him, not to us. In verse 36, we see him as the author and the giver and the father of all wisdom and understanding. I mean, now, certainly as creatures made in his image, we can reflect his wisdom to a certain degree, but our comprehension of the world as it is will always be limited, whereas his understanding is infinite. And his loving kindness and his compassion for his creatures is evident through the last few verses of the chapter, and frankly, all through chapter 39. You see, the point is that since God cares for even the least of his creatures, the young lion in the den, the ravens, well then, how much more will he care for those who have been created in his image? You see, this is the essential message of the chapter. That God is God, and he cannot be second-guessed, and criticized by mere men. That he's the Almighty. And here we see him emphasizing the fact that we are far inferior to him. And so once again, we are called to yield to him, confessing our weakness and trusting in his strong power to do what's right. Now what is it about admitting our weakness that's so difficult? For example, why do men have a hard time asking for directions? Is it just me? I can't be the only one, all right? Um, you know, I think this point was kind of driven home to me just a few weeks ago. I was, in a, uh, I was going to a Walgreens. I was looking for a certain item, and my 19-year-old daughter was with me. She was, she was trailing me, and I walk into the store, and I'm looking for a particular item. I'm walking up and down the aisles, and I couldn't find it. And after walking up, the aisle, up and down the aisles a couple of times, I passed the, the, the girl who was stocking the shelves there, and my daughter, she, she asked, why don't you just ask the girl? She, she knows where it's at. I was like, no, no, I can find it. And sure enough, I walked up and down those, those rows again. I couldn't find it. And after another couple passes, my daughter, she asked again, why wouldn't you ask her? She's right there. And I was like, no, I can find it. I can find it. So now my daughter challenges me. And she goes, why wouldn't you? She's right there. She, she knows where it's at. Let's ask her. 
And I actually said this. I'm, I'm actually ashamed to admit. I said these words. I was, she goes, why wouldn't you ask her? And I was like, because I'm a man. I can find it myself. And you know what? I went up and down those aisles, and eventually, I found it. I did not need any help. I could do it on my own. I'll find it. And eventually, I did. And of course, I think there's another word for that. It's called stubborn pride, isn't it? Now, maybe that won't be so bad when you're simply trying to find your way around the local drugstore. But please understand, stubborn pride is deadly when it comes to your relationship with God. Because that's just the way salvation is. It's 100% of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That is, men and women who are utterly helpless and lost in their sin. People who need help from the outside. People who need rescuing. You see, if you refuse to admit your weakness and rely upon God's strength, you'll end up trying to save yourself, thinking that your good works or your sincerity is good enough, or maybe your sin's not so bad. Perhaps that's one or more of you in this room this morning. Be careful. Be careful. Because an essential to a healthy relationship with God is a humble confession of our weakness and our inability and a firm trust in God's strength to save. You see, this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 5 when he says, well, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we need to admit our weakness and confess our trust in God's strength. My question is, where are you at this morning? Have you come to that point that you finally realized that you can't do it, that you can't save yourself, that you need help from a Savior, someone from the outside who will come and rescue you from your sin. I hope that describes you today, because like it or not, the hard truth is that you can't save yourself. And if you try, you will fail 100% of the time. But the good news is that there is indeed a Savior who created you at the first, who sustains you even today, and who promises to redeem you from your sin if you'll but trust in him. Do that today, resting confident in his mighty power to save.